Hello and welcome once again to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. In this episode, you're going to hear John's story. This is a story that starts in East Germany in the final years of World War II. A young child sheltering under a blanket in a cellar as Lancaster bombers rip through the air, then follow the deprivations of the post-war era and the repression of the police state that was the German Democratic Republic. Escape to West Germany follows, and while working at Mercedes, the tentacles of the dreaded Stasi reach out to ensnare him. And this is just one of several reasons that prompted John to become a 10-pound kraut to Australia, where he would eventually end up getting a job at the Hydro in Tasmania. Now, there's so much more to tell about John's life journey. It's on the one hand a very personal story, but also gives a real insight into how significant historical events impact individuals. And it's a story which I'm sure you will enjoy hearing in John's own words. Well, I lived in a fairly low-value uh, area, uh, housing, and it was basically a worker's estate. It was specially built for, for working-class housing because the town was growing, the population was growing fairly rapidly. But my early impressions were uh, sort of informed by the war action. So when you see 200 Lancaster bombers, each with four 12-cylinder engines without any mufflers, that's frightening enough, even if they don't drop a single bomb. And there was always a situation where the, the Allied attack was directed towards the town, say they were uh, flying towards Chemnitz, or the direction you could extrapolate that the target was Chemnitz, but then they they suddenly veered off and attacked someone who wasn't prepared Mm. for the attack. So we had a a lot of uh, sitting in the window and looking up there and seeing a massive wall of of, uh, bombers. And then there were maybe a dozen German uh, Messerschmitt trying to defeat them, which of course was useless because I had, at the time, the Allies had total air superiority and we had uh, lots of bombing alarms. Um, mm-hmm. That meant going down the basement. And my brother and I, we had a fawn blanket and my mother, or our mother, said, if you're under that blanket, nothing can hurt you, can mm. hurt you. And uh, obviously you can, you know, you can question that. Obviously it wasn't true. But she said, well, if you, if you get hit with a bomb, it doesn't matter that it was a lie. But we, uh, we firmly believed it and we were greatly you know, relying on it. And we even had a situation where suddenly myself or my brother said, oh, Mum, you know, where's our fallen blanket? She'd Mm. forgot the blanket. So in the middle of the bombing, it actually had to go upstairs, expose herself to all that danger to get the fallen blanket for us. Plown was subsequently one of the most destroyed cities after Hamburg and because uh, in Plown was a, a company they built, I think about 60% of the German battle tanks were built in Plown. So that was a, a, a very legitimate target. 
and um, you had situations where the school, my brother, I wasn't at school, but my brother was two years older. He was at school and there was a bombing attack and the teachers dismissed the class when they thought they could get home. Mm. But if they didn't get home, they looked, they took them and found an air child or somewhere else. Well, you know, we had often the situation where my mother took me and she went out and tried to find my brother. And fortunately, nothing ever happened to him, but one day we found him when they were one of these houses where they have uh, part of it below ground and there's the stairs going down and he, he was with a number of others huddled under there. And we also found very stressful images where you had a, uh, and you know, I never forget that, it's deeply imprinted on me, where you had a woman, she was four stories up, the house, and she was standing in the window and everything else on the inside was like a, a cauldron burning. So she had, a, she, she could stay there and burn or, or go down and uh, you know, jump and, and be splattered under footpaths. So, you know, that's uh, uh, some of my early childhood images. We had hand-me-downs, you know, because I had a brother two years older. I probably had my first uh, new shirt when I was, uh, you know, maybe seven. You know. Everything else it went from my brother to me. And that wasn't by any means unusual. That was just a thing at the time that, that families did or families of our limited means would have done that. So I had, my brother had this beautiful suit, knitted suit with pom-poms on it, and I always wanted it. And mum said, well, you know, you will get it one day. And the day came when she took it to the dry cleaners in the town, and a couple of days later, we, we went there to pick it up, you know, and I said, Moody, you, you know, I was pestering her. And when we got there, they said, oh, it's not quite done yet. You come back this afternoon. My, my mother said, oh, you know, we pick it up next week. Well, when we got, got there next week, the whole building was gone. There's nothing left of it. It was powerful, totally pulverised. And that was a big disappointment. And, and mm. I know it doesn't sound very important, but mm. it was a little fellow that had... Uh, I mean, this is just your clue, the, the childhood impression. And when I was seven, I was uh, undernourished. Mm. I was picked out from a school class, sort of with a distended abdomen, which evidently is... Uh, you know, a well-known sign of nutritional deficiency. So I was put in the camp where we got one ham roll a day. Well, we got other things as well, but we got one with real ham and butter and, and salad in it to build you up. And what did your parents do at the time? My mother was looking after the family. She was the housewife and my father worked. 
and he worked in a uh, in the early days he worked in a well you know you speak German a tone mover fabric now you know how they had these radiograms where you had the radio and your record player mm -hmm. and your you know no TV set at the time but he made special he was a, he's a furniture maker specializing in in that sort of product and uh, my dad he was drove a truck to get timber from the forest he had allocations of trees in the forest and there was a a, a gang that cut the the, the trees and, uh, and and my dad's role was to pick it up so um, that's what he did Later on, he, he was a policeman and he, he was a, a border guard and a policeman and he didn't last very long there because he couldn't walk slowly enough. Oh, really? You know, the police had to walk at a certain pace when they went on patrol. I mean, he, he would have walked normally when, when you, if you wanted to go from A to B, but when he just... The policeman was there to show the authority, to demonstrate that the place was patrolled and safe. He had the normal policeman's pace, and he got quicker and quicker, and mm. he just couldn't stop himself. And they got, he was unsuitable. And was this in the post-war period? It was in the post-war period, yeah. He had, uh, uh, I don't know whether you want to know this, but he had... He worked in underwater weapons research in a place called Eckernförde, mm -hmm. which is near Kiel. And shortly before, well, he, he wasn't going to get killed in the last days of the war. So before the total surrender, a few days before the total surrender, he got his bicycle, he killed a sheep and boiled it all down, threw the bones away and he had to speak big pot of uh, the, you know, boiled down sheep meat and he hopped on his bicycle and drove south about 500 kilometres home to his family and he couldn't get across the Elbe. Hmm. Well, first of all, he could only travel at night because if he would have been caught, he would have gone to Russia, probably Siberia as a prisoner of war. And uh, so he could only travel at night, and every bridge across the river was guarded, heavily guarded. Well, it was, you know, it was war, wartime measures. And he went all the way to, to Dresden, near, nearly Dresden, Mason, Dresden, and he concluded he couldn't get across the river, so he went back up. And he went all the way back up. That's a long way to go. It's a long way to go. And he went to a place just north of Hamburg where they had a sort of a villain fiddle, you know, sort of a bit of an upmarket suburb. And while he was there, he thought he'd better go and see a friend's wife because the friend got killed. And, and she didn't know. You know that was okay. a time when, when the normal system of your commanding officer writing a letter to the widow and say your, your husband was a hero and he died and, you know, he might have ended up blown up with just a bit of red foam on the wall, but, you know, that was the thing. But he thought he'd better do the right thing and see her and tell her what the, his, his last... Uh, 
Wirtz Wheel. And she had got a job with the Americans who issued coupons or the office. She was the secretary of the officer who issued the coupons that allowed you to go to Costa Bridge. So she gave him one of the coupons and he could get across the bridge and he eventually came home. But he had on his bicycle, he had patches on it, the tires were totally worn out and, you know, and had bits of stuff wrapped around it. But he got home. So he came and uh, I remember that very vividly. We were in a long queue because in our area all the services had broken down. There was no electricity, there was no water, but the, the civil authorities put by that time one tap for an area maybe like this central part of Blackman's Bay. There was one standpipe with a tap and you went there with whatever you had, a bucket. You know. So my mother had two buckets and, and I had a, like a, a, you know, one of these teapots and help her carry the water home. And really my father came along with, on, his, on his decrepit bicycle. The area of Plowman was liberated by the Americans. And the Americans left the area after 70 days. So we had 70 days of American occupation. And, and from then on till 1989, Russian dominated, or the Soviet Union then. I find the Russians behaving in a more legitimate way or that they did their administration with more integrity than the Americans. Okay. Now, you had something like a Russian soldier. They had very little. And you could see them march, and they had their tunics. They put their hand in, spitting out here. Mm. What they had was sunflowers. What's their lunch? Was sunflower seeds. That's all they had. The, they, the, the Red Army was very poor. I mean, they were winning, but they were still, they were exhausted by the time they got to, to be the occupiers. And um, when a Russian soldier got a bit fresh with some of the young girls, you know, the girls, you could ring up the commandant door and they came and picked that soldier up and got stuck into him. It, it, it was such brutality that people didn't even adopt him in anymore mm. because they, they said, well, they, they want him to, be, to behave better, but they didn't want him to, to, to be so uh, brutally treated. But mm. they did it because they had orders from above or from the Red Army leadership, we want to be an example that we're better than the Nazis. Whereas well, under the American system, it doesn't matter what an American did, he could behave in a foul way in front of 50 people, but they, they would never acknowledge it. They would always deny it. And, you know, they, couldn't, they couldn't do wrong. Uh, what, what do you remember about um, going to school at that, in that period? Well, I got to school in 1946, and our school wasn't bombed out but it was so near bombed out areas that all the windows had gone. The, the windows were all broken. And that was such a wide, 
white condition. There were so many windows broken that you couldn't get glass. Glass was unattainable. When the temperature in the classroom got below, I don't know, 15 degrees or something, we, we got to go home. Mm. You know, we had no school. I had good attendance of school, of school because my dad made uh, my brother and me shoes. Okay. He had obtained an apron, you know, shots fell from a blacksmith. You know how they have, they have this leather apron and they put their hand on it and after a year, it never gets in the wash. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just gets speckish, they say. He had obtained one of these, so he measured our feet and made a model of our, and, and made, I suppose, a pair of shoes and cut out a, a wooden sole. And so we had, we had these shoes, whereas a lot of the other kids didn't have shoes. So when the, when the, the streets were icy, they couldn't go to school. Right. So they didn't have shoes. So we were lucky, we had, we had, uh, we had shoes. So I finished up getting accepted in a course for building uh, steam turbines, but that would have meant I had to go away from home to a place called Chemnitz. And by that time, I had to sh- I was picked out as a swimmer. I joined the swimming club. Mm-hmm. I uh, played water polo. And that was very convenient because you could have a shower every day, you know, you go to training and you have a shower. And I was uh, reasonably successful. I finished up, I was twice East German schoolboy champion and I finished up being the youngest player in the East German water polo top league, Oberliga, was about Oberliga. I was the youngest player. Of all the teams, not not only from our team. Of course, East Germany is famous for its was famous for its sort of sports program, and had that begun at that time? Yes, it had begun, and I can clearly remember that our centre forward was uh, in the early days. He was the only person who was good enough to be in the national team, and he had a job as a technical drawing expert. But he never went in the office. He, he might have marched in in his bureau and said good morning everyone and how are you and then he'd get off the train. You know, he was paid to, to train. Three weeks or so after I left East Germany, my mother sent me a letter that, that was an invite for me to join the East German under-19 team. In, in what, what? In water polo. Water polo, okay. Yeah. So I, I played as a 70-year-old in the senior league and they invited me, presumably on the basis of my performance, they invited me to join the under-19. Now, the under-19 was, the, you know, the Olympic teams and their representative teams were only selected from the under-19. I mean, they had, they had that system and they were very successful with it. I'm always saying, if I had received that letter three weeks earlier, while I was still in East Germany, my future would have looked, might have looked entirely different. As it was, my parents went on, on the seaside holiday and my brother and I went to the rest. Mm-hmm. 
So what were the circumstances behind you getting out of Germany? Well, we didn't get out of Germany, just get out oh, of sorry. East Germany. East, sorry, yeah, East Germany. Well, East Germany was the most cruel and but effective military dictatorship that you can imagine. They they made the, the CIA and the and the KGB look like choir boys. They were just so successful in gradually closing the border. Now, I remember a time when we played league games in Berlin and we played a game on Saturday afternoon, one on Sunday morning, one on Sunday afternoon, three games. But when we had time off, we could just catch the train and go to the West Berlin. You know, it's easy to get away, just go to the, catch the, 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 the U-Bahn and get out in the West German station and fly out and you, you were in the West. But that was all closed up. And they sealed the border, not the Berlin Wall, but the border between East and West was sealed almost, well, not 100%, but very, very tight. And they had this, they had a a fence, a five metre strip that was raked. You could see a mouse run across. It was very fine, granulated and raked. And then there was a, a five, five, kilometre zone, you needed a green ticket to get in. But they had every uh, so long, so far apart, guard towers where they had lights, machine guns, and they had machine gun nests behind the border. They had three different commands, and these commands were, were religiously kept separate. They didn't know each other. And they had the border in Saxony, between Saxon and Bavaria, they had people from not Rhein-Westfalen or somewhere. So there was no no friendship. And the patrol patrolled the, the footpath off the five-metre strip that was right. They marched five paces apart. And if, if that soldier leading there would have gone over the wall, thrown his rifle away and jump across the wire fence, the people in the guard tower, their orders were not to shoot the guy who goes over the fence, shoot the one who didn't shoot the guy over the right. fence first. And you know, that was the border, a three command issue. When I went out, I, I just went out in, the, in 1957, in the early phase of the, of the border closure, when you could still get across on some story. You know, I, I forged a letter that I had someone take to the West and mail to me, which was my uncle, asking me to, you know, he had bad luck and he, he needed someone to help him to bring the harvest in and would I be good enough to, to help him? You know, and with that letter, I managed to get across. But that soon, you know, they stopped that. So I went from... I became a refugee at age 17 in, in totally non-traumatic circumstances. So did you, just, did you leave just on your own? I left with my brother because he had a motorbike because I had all my money in, in my jacket pocket up here and when I went through the border administration, they said, have you got any money? It was prohibited to take East German currency out of East Germany mm-hmm. oh, no, I don't have any money and I walked out and when I was just about to open the door the, the policeman said oh, 
come back here. And he went like that and said, what's that? And the little I had, he confiscated. You know, so I went to the West, I had nothing. We shared a little case, uh, you know, a little leather case like that. Well, we basically had another shirt and another pair of underpants and not much else. The towns had a system where they gave you a, a, a set of coupons which were only valid to buy the, the sort of the stuff, substance of your life, you know, like bread. You, know. you couldn't buy cigarettes, alcohol, or, you know, nothing like that, or magazines, or, you know, they were valued. And they gave you 10 marks if mm-hmm. you left their town by 10 o'clock the next morning. You know, so that's how they got rid of you. They, I mean, we, we, you know, we, we might have wanted to say, oh, that looks a nice little town, but we needed the 10 marks to fill up the petrol tank because your coupons, petrol, you couldn't get petrol on them as well. Okay. As well. So where did you end up then? Well, we ended up near Stuttgart and um, the motorbike fatally broke down and... Uh, Long story short, the motorbike went down and that's why we finished up in Stuttgart. Then had to go to a place called Giesen, where, where they did the administration for Eastern for refugees. You, know, you were interviewed by an American officer of some kind and I was allowed to stay because... I was under 18, they would have been entitled, even obliged, to send me back because I was under 18. I wasn't officially uh, capable of making the decision to, to leave East Germany. But they interviewed me and uh, I finished up with a certificate that my stay in West Germany was granted. And I got a job in, in Stuttgart with a company called Fein, F-E-I-N, Fein, and they invented the hand drill, you know, the electric hand drill. What brought you then to Australia? I had foolishly gone on to smuggle currency, which I hasten to say was not a criminal offence in West Germany because West Germany didn't recognise the, the Indozone border. For, as far as they were concerned, they weren't there. They never controlled anyone or interviewed anyone. You could just walk across. And the removal of East German currency to the West was prohibited. Oh, now, when you were in the West and you wanted to go to the East and wanted money, you had to get changed one-to-one. Mm. One West mark got one East mark. But on the black market, you might have gotten a different time, something up to, up to one-to-eight or something. And what I did, I bought a lot of that currency in a one-to-three and sold it for one-to-eight in the, in the East. And, of course, that was just totally ignorant, totally naive and... I can't even now think how stupid I was because one of the group, obviously, you know, whenever you had three people together, one of them was was a Stasi, Mm -hmm. either a Stasi member or a Stasi informer. So that was sort of like an unwritten rule. But at the time, I didn't know that. Uh, Anyway, I went to the 
industrial exhibition in Leipzig, the Leipziger Mustermesse. Got a pass to go there, and I happily dealt out my money to the people I owed who had paid me in Western money. And I said, oh, well, that's done. And as soon as I had that done, they came, wow. knocked on my flat, and I was verhaftet. Arrested, yeah. No, I wasn't, well, I, I suppose I was arrested, uh, but I, I could go home, you know. I was interviewed, I denied everything. They said to me I was a wonderful liar. <laughs> and it turned out they had, from when I was five years old, my school results they had. Mm. Everything I had ever done in life, they had. And they had to descend how much I gave to each of the people, yeah. the money. And they took me around. And the, the operative, his name was Ginter. His name probably was something else, but yeah. he told me it was Ginter. I called him that. And we went around and you know, around the town, nicest uh, restaurants. You know, and he said, "Do you want anything?" You know. He said, "Oh, do you want uh, you know want a nice girl?" Uh, you know. It was all there, and he had a case. It was full of money. And he just put his hands in and doled it out. He obviously had access to unlimited amounts of money and he didn't have to account for them. He never asked anyone for a receipt and put it down in the book that you, you know, disperse and get refunded, as I would have thought maybe you had to. And he did this to recruit me into the East German Secret Service. That, I mean, that became clear, you know, because I was wondering, what are they getting at? Why don't I had sort of finished up, thought I finished up in some unsavoury prison camp, you know, because I had broken their law, you know, I, I knew that. But I was, I was given, I was given 100 Westmarks and sent back to, to meet them at, at a certain date in Berlin. And they wanted information about Mercedes-Benz, the work. Because by that time, I worked for a contractor and I had access to all areas of the plant. And, and you can imagine, I don't know whether you've ever seen the Mercedes-Benz facility in Sindelfingen, but the, they had two power stations on the, you know, two of their own power stations. And I gave them certain information. Yeah, and I had no intention of ever going back to Berlin, and I didn't. And then on a day, I was way up in, in one of the factory holds, way up in the steel up there putting cables through, and there was a commotion down on the floor. And I said, what on earth, what are they up to? People in suits and, you know, because no one in, on the work floor wore suits. And it turned out they were looking for me. And I hid, and I... Uh, immediately went to the office building and I said I wanted to see one of the directors. It was a bit naive for me to ask one of the directors, but I got to see one of the personal assistants of a, of a director and I told him the whole story, how yeah. I went to these, how stupid I was and how I betrayed the company that was very good and I told him that information and I thought he'd probably slap Put you in handcuffs. Handcuffs on me and escort me out of the premises. 
He said, sit down, son. You see, that, that the East German wanted me to feel guilty and use that, the, the release of that information to the Western authority to pressurise me to cooperate with them. And that's why I thought the best thing is own, own up now. I didn't want to be, be involved. I didn't want to be a spy. But they sent people to university, you know. They... they and they had people in the highest, and you might have heard of Guglielmo, Chancellor Brandt's second 2IC, was an East German spy. But he put me totally at ease, and he said, they know all that already, don't worry. You didn't tell them anything they didn't know already. And it mainly revolved around the West German government paid Mercedes-Benz to have their new production facilities strong enough, solid enough, not only to have a, a, a saloon car, but to have a fighting vehicle, you know. Not necessarily a tank, but a, a light a wing protection for, for tank brigades, you know, that mm -hmm. sort of class vehicle. It was all built strong enough and wide enough with, you know, the military planners or the, the, the state compensated the company for making the, basically a, a, a potential war production plan, and they knew all that. Mm. You know, Mercedes-Benz knew that they knew, and you know there was no. You can't keep that sort of thing secret. It's too big, and too many people know about it. And and he said, I make arrangement. He said, you go back to your job, and take it from me. If, if you have the slightest problem with anyone, come and see me. My door is open to you. I make the arrangement that you'll always be given access to me. And, you know, oh, that was good. But I didn't trust the East Germans. You know, they were too cunning. Mm. That, that sort of involvement, I said, oh. I said, Australia, you know, or Canada, it'd be too far away. They won't stretch there tentacled so far but they did wow. I worked for the hydro and one day I got I worked out in Claremont and my boss Stan Godfrey he came and said I want you to hop in the car and I said well Stan look I've got to finish all this here and he said don't worry about that let me worry about that just put, lay down your, your tools and come with me and he took me in and there were two Asia blokes there interviewing me. So, so that they had somehow come good on their thread that if I don't cooperate with them, I'll be sorry. They'll make life misery for me wherever I go. And they said, you know, they, they said when they were still in Germany, they said, w we can easily grab you, you know, take you to these. And I said, well, no, hang on, we've got the police here and we've got a heap of scorpions and, and, and you know, West Germany is a rule of law town. And they said, you, you said, what would you do if two police officers with a police uniform and armed and everything and Warren Card come and said, look, my name is Sergeant so-and-so and I want you to come with me. So you finish up in the back of a truck with a bit of chloroform and by the time you come to, you're in the east. Because the West didn't check the trucks. They could mm. take anything across their life. And they did it to people. They didn't do it to me, but they did it to people. 
And that long story being very long and boring, that was another reason why I came out here. So essentially you were coming to Australia to be as far away as possible from the, the reach of the... Well, it was one reason, yep. because, and another reason was that we, the East German refugees in the West, we weren't all that welcome. I can say, and I'm not only saying that for, for the purposes of this interview, I've, you know, people who know me know that I've always said that. I've been received with greater, had a better welcome, received with more dignity in, a, in Tasmania than in, than in the West. They always thought these boys from, from the East, now God knows what they do with our girl, and um, there was all that sort of innuendo. And in addition to that, there was, uh, as you probably know, Saxony is a Protestant area. You know? I was baptised the, after the Lutheran faith, and the West is predominantly Catholic. So they knew we didn't go to, the, we didn't go to Mass and the Eucharist, yeah, and then you're already suspect. So there was that. That was a reason. Well, I mean, that's two. That's the second reason. And another reason was probably that we were young. We sat in the pub and had a few beers and said, "Oh, you know, everything, everything is crap and things going for worse. Let's go and do something." And we decided as a group to go to Australia. And, and and we did. Instead of a ten pound pom, I'm a ten pound crowd. So you you went on an assisted migration. I went on an assisted migration, and I went from Stuttgart on the bus from Sindelfing into Stuttgart, and then on the train from Stuttgart to Bremerhaven. Mm-hmm. And I think by the time I was in Cologne, my ten pound would have been worn out. <laughs> So did you come directly to Tasmania? I, I went from, uh, and only the other day, Mary and I left from Station Pier in, in St Kilda on a cruise, and I said exactly 62 years ago, I came on the same pier and went down St Kilda Road. And it was just before Christmas, the same as when I came here in 1960. And uh, we went there by... Chauvet Limousine, the place called Bonnegilla. The reception centre. A migrant reception centre, which was absolutely beautiful. You know, Bonnegilla was a migrant reception centre. You had your hut, and people said, oh, the huts were dirty. Well, if you had a dirty hut, that's because you didn't clean it. My friends and I, we cleaned, we had a day when we had a big clean of our hut. No, because they had all the cleaning, uh, you know, the powders, the brushes, and it was all there, supplied free of charge. You got three meals a day, you could eat as much as you want, you, you got three, you know, but you had uh, meat and three veg and pudding, and you could line up as many times as you like, you know. I mean, you know, young boys eat a lot, and you know, it's quite important, but people said the food was terrible. They forgot that Bonagilla wasn't a hotel. <laughs> no, it wasn't a hotel. It was meant to keep you alive and keep you probably nourished that you do not waste or, you know, contract diseases due to protein deficiency or God knows what. And they had English classes. They had seminars 
in the central facility every day, movies, they had, you know, a fellow came in and told you about poisonous snakes and spiders and that they told you what berries not to touch, you know, in the forest and what to protect and all that. And every now and then they opened up a building where they had little stalls so if you were an employer in Hobart and wanted a blacksmith or mm-hmm. two, you'd go to Bernagilla, have a stand, and they would then announce over the PA system, so-and-so, you know, Mark Thompson, Propriety Limited, looking for a blacksmith. You know? And if you're a blacksmith, you go down there and they interview you and say, well, what can you do? And, you know, how, how would you do that? Blah, blah, blah. And... You say, well, how much would you pay me and would I get protective clothing? And, you know, I I attended a thing like that for the hydro and I had worked out that I needed £20. You know, when, when I had to, to say how much do I want or what job do I accept, £20 was my mark. And that was 1960. So the hydro offered me £19.17. Okay. And I had already been five weeks in Bonagilla swim out in the morning out on the humor with my book in a, in a tree branch, you know. Beautiful. So I took the job for £19.17. I said, well, bugger it, if I, if I can live on 20, I must be able to live on £19.17. And what was the, what was the work that you were um, supposed to do there? Well, the work, what I was supposed to do, somehow they mixed up my brother and me because he was in, he did electrical installations and subsequently he had he was became an electrical contractor and you know, did his own contracting business and I was the machine guy but they put me in the out to build the distribution infrastructure and him in the transformer bay all right so he did what I was learned the trade in and I did what he learned the trade in but um, I don't know how I did it, but I fronted up in the morning, they all introduced me and, you know, there was a group there. And I said, you know, with my two or three words of English I knew, I said, well, you know, what do you want me to do? Oh, you know, they gave me a toolbox, they gave me a, what else, a dust coat or something, or a, a boiler suit. Then they gave me the drawings. And if and it's a fortunate circumstance, like music. Now you give a say an oboist, an oboe concerto, the music. It doesn't matter whether he's a, a Nigerian. If he you know if he knows his music, he can play it. And it's the same with electrical drawings. Mm-hmm. Now, electrical drawings in Germany are very similar to the ones you get here. Now, so in other words, if you know your your way around German technical drawings you can understand the technical drawings here and that saved me. So they dumped me off on a, uh, somewhere on a building which was just a, a square room. Uh, might have been underground in front of Fitzgerald's in town or in one of the new suburbs. Uh, I got the drawings out, oh yeah, yeah. switchboard here, right, put it up, cable it up, run cables across here. And by this, by the sounds of it, at that t- time, your English wasn't all that developed. Is that right? I, I knew n- none when I came here. Yeah. We had a, a, a young lady on the boat, even. 
I say young ladies, I don't believe they would have been all young ladies. We might have just taken more notice of the young ladies. But they were there to, to instruct you in English. And they said, anyone who wants to dance with me tonight, unless you ask me in English, I won't dance with you. You know, that's the sort of... And uh, the same in Bonagilla. They had uh, English tuition, but I, I wasn't, I don't know, I was too irresponsible to take advantage of it. <laughs> but I, I knew a little bit, and I must say, you know, as you probably know, you, you, I take it you speak German, you, yeah. you, uh, you know that English and German, it's, it's fairly easy for a German speaker to learn English, particularly if you have a good grasp of German grammar. I, I know I had some episodes, I changed my name merely for convenience, and not only for me, but I didn't want my children to go get up and say, what's your name? And you say something and they all laugh, and our right, children yeah. are cruel. So I, that was that, but I've never shied away from my origin, you know. Although I, I could, with, you know, you had picket, bigots who classified me as an ex-enemy alien, you know. And I think that is a significant point. I feel obliged to point out when you have worked somewhere in a very Tasmanian environment like the hydro. It is very difficult to get to work on Monday when on Sunday afternoon was the, the 150th program of the year on the Holocaust and all the, 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 you know, the dreadful things which I didn't endorse, my family didn't endorse. You know, I know all the criminals say they didn't do it and they are noble. Well, you know, it's very difficult. You know, you go into the lunchroom and people talking and say, well, you know, they probably say, well, you know, he's one of them, you know. I had incidents, I recall, when I was building Albera Street Primary School, a substation. There was a little fellow there playing in Albera Street. And I, and I just said, you know, what's your name and what do you want for Christmas? And it must have been near Christmas. He said, oh, I want a machine gun. Oh, I said, you know, what do you want to do with the machine gun? He said, shoot the Germans. A little fellow like that. Yeah. I mean, he must have, where did he get that from? And wow. I said to him, I said to him, oh, yeah, well, you know. And then I said to him, well, I'm a German. That was before I got naturalised, 1975 or somewhere. And he said, well, I'm a German. And, and it's quite surprised him and and I worked with uh, colleagues here whom I respected and they respected me and after working together for quite a while they said you know you're the first German I met that actually made me believe that Germans can be quite normal and uh, w what did you do after the, the 10 years at the hydro I made a mistake of being in the hydro for 10 years because when I was there for, say, seven and a half years, I said, if I have another two and a half years, I get long service leave, which is just stupid. But I had 
I had no intention originally to stay in Tasmania. I wanted to, to go and see and perhaps select an abode elsewhere in Australia okay. or even go back to Germany, which you could do after you stayed here a number of years. But then I got besotted with a young lady and Mary told me when, when she saw me in town digging a trench to install earth wires and cables and that, she said to me, you know, you have an, the ability to do something better than that. And I said, nah, <laughs> not me, you know. I, I, never, I never matriculated. I went to school for eight years and I had a... But then Mary convinced me to uh, do a degree, you know, and I did a business degree and started to work for the government, which, which was good. I worked 27 years for the government after that. Yeah, in, in, what, um, in what capacity? Well, I was a very small Indian, you know. Uh, well, I was senior project manager. That was uh, a little bit above project manager, but not much. I worked with, for the Department of Industrial Development, which had various incarnations and reincarnations. It retired uh, in, 19, in 2006 after 52 years in the labour force. We, we had a, a, a very big house in Tinderbox and nearly 14 acres of ground. And when I got Parkinson's, and you know, we, 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 that, that was supposed to be our home forever, and it just all got too much for me. If you look out the window here, you can see we've got artificial turf, you know, and a, and a geometrical garden. And I set that up with my last bit of strength. So low maintenance, you know. So I have no wish to go back to Germany. When we sold that play, when we forced to sell it, mm -hmm. we had to go somewhere else. We, well, you know, you have to live somewhere. And we looked, we went all up the New South Wales coast, you know, to Foster, and, and we didn't find anywhere where mm. we wanted to live. And because we're both German speakers, we, we looked in, you know, in Germany, where houses are very cheap, very, very cheap compared to here. A lot of them very low standard dwellings, but nevertheless, you can buy, easily buy something. And where did we go? We went from Tinderbox Road, the Blackness Bay. Mm. <laughs> because, you know, we think this is just the best place anywhere. I can't imagine where I would rather live. And we had the opportunity to... Uh, and we could have gone to Italy because okay. both Mary and I, we wouldn't have had any problem in the absence of Parkinson's-induced cognitive decline. We would have had no trouble learning Italian. So we, 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 we really could say the world is our oyster. And our true selection was to come here. You know? And we think from here, from our street and, and the, the main road up there, that's the trash circle. You know? We can walk to the shop, we can walk to the beach, we can sit out on the balcony yeah. and, and have breakfast and we have a sunroom and we've got a lift and for, if I can't manage the stairs. So we went for our own comfort 
and really didn't want to be anywhere else. And then there's the medical treatment. You know, I've got peripheral neuropathy. I've got two cancers in remission. I've got Parkinson's. I've got a number of illnesses. And the treatment I get in the Royal Hobart Hospital, I get so angry when people criticise the hospital. I've had nothing but kindness and and goodwill from from the, the, the Royal Hobart Hospital. The people in there, you know, and I've got a, a medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist. I had a speech therapist because of the swallowing, and I had a stent. Um, you know, a, a tube directly into the stomach because I had a cancer of the esophagus where okay. it joins the, the stomach. And all these procedures and living with these things, the help I've received is just, it couldn't be any better. The difference is that people live here and they don't know how fortunate they are living here because they've never lived anywhere else. And I have enjoyed the same benefit, but I know about it. Yeah. I can appreciate it. I can look out and say, whoa. You know? Yeah, I think, it, I think it takes being somewhere else to really appreciate what we, yeah. what we have here. And, Mark, there are all sorts of little things. You know, we're, we're walking along there and a friend, and they say, oh, look at that house. They painted the house violet. How silly. <laughs> Well, I say, what a wonderful thing. Mm. You know, you can, if you think your house is a good thing, to, you like violet, or you paint, you, uh, you're free to do it. No? Whereas you, you go in a subdivision, say in, in Wuppertal or somewhere in Germany, the block, they all got to be, the, the, there's the maximum setback from front and rear and the sides, that always makes every house the same block because they all want to build big and there's a maximum height and they all, because the, the ground area is not big, they all have the same height, you know. And, and when you take all that into consideration, every house looks the same and they've got to paint their front door. They've got to get permission to repaint their front door. And, you know, and I say, oh, look, you know, he wants to paint his house violet. Well, what a good thing. Mm-hmm.